0: This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is the World in Time. Lead support for the World in Time podcast has been provided by Lisette Prince through the EJMP Fund for Philanthropy. Speaking today with the Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Stephen Greenblatt about his new book, The Rise and Fall of Adam and Eve. It's a wonderful book, Stephen, a book full of wonders, and maybe you can begin at the beginning, how and why you came to write the history of one of the most extraordinary and far-reaching stories ever told. Thank you, Lewis, and if you'll indulge me,
1: I'd like to begin, even before the beginning, back further than I dare to go in my book, 36,000 years ago, if you go into Lascaux or to the to Font de Gomme, or to the Grotte Chauvet and those remarkable caves in the south of France, and you see the paintings on the wall. It's one of the great experiences of my life to have seen some of these uh, cave paintings. You realize, if you hadn't realized before, that uh, at the very, very beginning of whatever traces we have of being a human being, we have our species making representations of the world. And not only are they representations of the world, but what's unsettling about those representations is that the paintings on the walls of the caves are incredibly beautiful. And indeed, though one wouldn't say that they're more beautiful than anything painted by Rembrandt or Michelangelo or Picasso, they're not distinctly worse than anything painted by Michelangelo or Rembrandt. So what does that mean? It means... For me, two things. One is that human beings have been doing this a long time, making representations of the world. And secondly, that there's no progress in these representations, which is very unnerving. If I go to a doctor to consult about the pain in my back, I want the latest therapy, what happened, what the view is late last night, not the view in the 1990s, and certainly not the view in the 1690s. But in the case of art, that's not true. There's no progress built into it. And it's not just painting, because we also find, of course, we don't have access to it in the same way, but we find in those caves flutes, so people were making music. And then some of, and we find little sculptures, including sculptures of, for example, a lion headed man, a famous one from 50,000 years ago from Germany. And that lion headed sculpture, a human being with the head of a lion, means that people were making up stories at the beginning as well. So I say that this is the real beginning, right. that somehow as a species, this is what we do. And we've done it as it were to define ourselves as a species from the beginning. We don't get better at it, but we keep doing it in new and inventive ways. That's the miracle. Even though we don't improve, it's not, a, it's not like anatomy or astronomy, we, we keep at it. And somewhere along the line, also quite early, We have this origin story, and we can presume, I think, that human beings have, again, asked themselves for a very long time, where do we come from? How do we get this way? In lots of different societies, we have traces of human beings. Virtually all societies, we have traces of, of human beings asking that question. So someday, one day, we don't have access to the moment, but a very long time ago, someone must have come up with this story. We don't know who it was. We don't know when it was, but we presume it was at least before the 8th century, before the Common Era, so a very long time ago.
0: We get it from from Genesis in the Bible, right? Yes. But the Hebrews got it from even earlier sources. Exactly. It must
1: have been floating around for a very long time
0: before the Hebrews
1: necessarily thought of themselves as Hebrews, in any case, from very, very far back. And it's actually not a story about the origin of the Hebrews. We have such a story, that's the story of Abraham, but it's the story of the origin of our species, of humans. And the or we don't know when the story came from, but we there's some at least reason to believe that the story was already written down in the eighth century, which probably means it was floating around as an oral story, something told around at night around the campfire under the stars for centuries before that, in different forms, lots of different stories. And this is the one we have. Genesis, compared with what we're talking about, Genesis is very recent, right. uh, but not recent by our standards, uh, if we think that the news cycle, what what comes in, as it were, that happened late last night, but still within a, a range, after all, it's written down. But we think the story probably originated before writing.
0: Your book traces the history of this story over many thousands of years. I mean, you start with the way it's told in Genesis, and, and then you come forward through time, and there are three, in in your book, there there are three major explicators of the story, you know, giving it re- reality, giving it various elements of worth, and, and those are... Saint Augustine in the, in the what is it the fifth century yes the, the, and the late fourth late fifth century and then there's Durer in the early sixteenth century the German artist and then there in the seventeenth century the the English poet John Milton you want to take those in order and sort of start with the the Bible and move on to the early church in augustine and the idea of original sin and then to to juror. sure it's a tall okay. order i, but I, 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 <laughs> I understand so. i understand and, and you will talk.
1: and you will you will stop me if i'm okay. losing my track uh, the the first thing to say is that one of the things that's amazing about this story is that it's quite short and Apparently simple it turns out not to be so simple, but first of all you hear it You hear it when you're five years old and you never forget it. It somehow sticks like a burr uh, In you and that's uh, it's part of its remarkable quality Everyone knows the story in our culture. It doesn't take much to know it or rather it stays with you and Well well, briefly what is it? So here's the story. The story is Uh. that there's a naked man and woman Uh, and a talking snake and a beautiful garden that was apparently made just for them. There's a god who tells you uh, you can eat anything you want in this wonderful garden, but there's a single exception. There's a prohibition uh, from eating from one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat from that tree, you die. He doesn't give an explanation for what dying is, but... That's only one of the many complications uh, in the story. But story goes that, that uh, the woman has a conversation with a snake. The snake asks her if it really is the case that she can't eat from that particular tree. And she says, yes, we can't even touch the tree because if we do, uh, we'll die. And the snake says, indeed, that wonderful indeed. Verily, as it is translated, and the snake says, it's not true that, that it actually you can become like a god if you eat from the tree. Woman believes, or in any case, we do not not told whether the woman believes or not. We're told that it uh, uh, the, she looked up at the tree, the fruit was beautiful, it was beautiful to look at, and looked like it was good to eat. She took it and ate it, gave it to her mate. He also ate of it, and then, having violated the prohibition, they are punished. And not only are they punished, but uh, evidently all of their descendants are punished.
0: They're, they are forced out of Eden. They are
1: forced out of Eden. The woman is told that she'll suffer the pangs of childbirth. Now the man is told that he'll have to labor uh, to survive. The ground will bring forth nettles. Uh, the woman is told that she'll be dominated by the man that she's with but she'll still desire him and out at the far end of this they'll told they're told that they will return to the dust from which they came and indeed all of their descendants evidently suffer from the same fate so that's the story of a garden and a transgression in a garden and perfect place and the expulsion from the perfect place and that story inspired has inspired thousands of years of conflicting interpretations, representations, desires to believe, desires not to believe, and uh, a huge comet's trail of consequences uh, from this extraordinary, how should we say, radioactive yeah. small core. And I'm interested in how it came about that this was written down at all and this became the Hebrew story. That's in itself a fascinating entirely speculative uh, subject. Speculative, but also fascinating because, as I say, the the Genesis, book of Genesis doesn't begin, as you might expect, with the origin of the Jews, the origin of the Hebrews, which is to say Abraham. It begins with the origin of humans, right. Adam and Eve, which is itself an interesting decision, which we could talk about. But then what fascinates me, in addition to the launching of this story into the world, is what happened to it. And there are two things to say. One is that it's transmitted tens, hundreds of thousands of retellings, uh, millions probably of retellings over the century. So the first thing to say is that it, a story like this survives because it's told and retold and retold over and over again until it reaches Lewis Lapham, reaches Stephen yeah. Greenblatt. It just yeah. But then on a s- relatively small number of occasions, something happens to the story. It changes its course. It swerves in some direction. And the question is how or why? And the important thing for me about the answer, because the swerves are different in different cases, and you've mentioned three of them that are the very important ones for me, is that in each case the change came not only because some extraordinary person of great genius grappled with it, but because this person brought to the act of engaging with the story every piece of his being, the whole package, not simply his mind, but his heart, not simply his heart, but his body, not only one part of his body, but his whole body. Uh, That is to say, every aspect of that person's being, and that's true, I say hidden, but it's true, there are female figures as well involved in this, to change the story, Every part of you has to be engaged. And that's true of Augustine, that's true of Durer, and that's true of Milton. We have extraordinary cases of people of great genius, but people of great genius who held nothing back. So another way of putting it, the reverse way of putting it, would be to say the story seized them. Right. That in each case, a weird thing happened in which, a little bit like... Uh, the popular movie Alien, science fiction movie Alien, in which something inhabited these remarkable people and took them over almost completely. And in in each case, you can feel the presence of the story over years and years in each of these people as it gestated and transformed itself within them and then was relayed out to the world again in a different form.
0: Well, briefly talking about Augustine in the 5th century... A.D., uh, introducing the, uh, the notion of original sin. Augustine
1: spent a lot of his life thinking about Adam and Eve. He began thinking about Adam and Eve in the context of his belief that there must be two gods out there, a good god and a wicked god. Uh, he was a Manichaean at that point, a Manichaean Christian, uh, but a believer that there must be a force for good and a force for evil independently struggling in the world, this Persian belief, heresy, as it was eventually called by the Church. And in his conversion to Catholicism, he abandoned uh, this belief in the two gods. But the question remains, where does the evil come from? And Augustine grappled long and hard with the question, not simply where does it come from out in the world looking around at all the miserable creatures who were out there, God knows there were plenty then, as there are plenty now but where does it come from inside
0: so it must himself? be with it must be within
1: where does it come from within himself where do these impulses come from it's not he saw awful things out there but he also saw looking into himself m- complicity let's say with those awful things or things things in him that he, were equally part of that bad side and if there was not a second separate god god of evil along with a god of good then what is the answer it can't be that god was responsible for this because Augustine believed that God would have to be perfectly good. It must be that humans were responsible for this, but how could humans be responsible for this if God was not already responsible? And it must mean, then there's an argument, there's a big argument uh, that goes on, had gone on already for centuries, but then continues into the from the third, fourth, fifth century and then beyond Augustine. And Augustine's solution to this was that there must have been something that happened at the origin of human life that uh, launched human beings along this terrible path that we've followed, that we must have begun good and able to choose the good, and we must have made the wrong choice. But not only did we make the wrong choice, but we must pass this disposition to make the wrong choice along, he wouldn't have said genetically, but we would say genetically, along to our offspring, that something in us must have transmitted, been transmitted to all offspring. Why? Because he says, look around. Do you see uh, a lot of signs of human goodness? There are some signs of human goodness out there. But if you look at humanity over a long period of time, you see that humanity over and over again makes the same catastrophic mistakes. And he thought that it must be uh, not simply a set of free choices, yet again an unbelievably dumb choice, but that we must have inherited a disposition to do this, hence original sin.
0: Also, the notion that sin is a sexually transmitted disease.
1: Well, he had to figure something out, some way of transmitting yeah. it out, and it's actually fascinating. Of course, he didn't have the access to the language of genetics, as we would if we wanted to, to Convey something comparable to this, we would probably choose. But he had to think, and it was unbelievably clever when you think about it, what he thought. How is it possible that this gets transmitted over and over again, generation after generation, person after person? It must be something that he thought that all of us, uh, have inherited, but how is it possible for all of us to inherit it? Well, he thought that it must be something about our making the way we're made sexually that transmits it, Right. that is, is, is very clever. It's breathtaking. It may be awful, yeah, but right. it's breathtakingly clever yeah. as a way of figuring out how it's possible over seemingly infinite number of generations for this to be passed along.
0: But that, that also leads during a long period of time in the in the Middle Ages, at least in Europe, the demonization of women the anxiety about sex and the demonization about women both yeah. uh,
1: they didn't invent this because the greeks had a dose of this after all think of pandora they had a dose of this themselves without christianity but christianity in with this myth with this very powerful story managed to to capture in, in its own terms in its own way what the greeks the pagan greeks had believed about women which was that they what you find in hesiod which was, watch out for women, they will lead you uh, right. astray. It's not the only possible interpretation of the story. And Indeed, one of the things that's interesting about the Adam and Eve story is it's possible to, to take it in a different direction, but this was the direction that it was taken, certainly, by thousands and thousands of interpreters, mostly men.
0: But then uh, Durer and... Milton take it in somewhat different direction. Yes.
1: It already by Durer in the early 16th century, Durer begins to think through a different sense. In some sense, he's inherited completely the Augustinian framework because he and Milton both inherit what Augustine, not only original sin, but something else that Augustine gave to the story, which was the insistence that it was literally true that you had to take it in a literal sense. Not everyone in Augustine's time by any means thought that that was a good idea, on the contrary. And Augustine thought it had to be taken literally. You have to remember that Augustine is incredibly sophisticated, not a... Um, yeah, he's
0: a brilliant... He's but, a brilliant man, so yeah.
1: his decision to take it literally was not because he was naive and thought that a story about a naked man and woman and a stalking snake was easily believable. He understood that it was fantastically hard to believe this literally. And he he led, he bequeathed to Western Christianity this incredibly complicated task of taking what looks like a fairy tale and and making it real, of making the Pinocchio puppet with its strings and its joints, wooden joints, suddenly yeah. stand up and dance like a human yeah. being. And he succeeded in doing it, but it took about a thousand years to do it. It, it it took about a thousand years of effort and it's precisely in the world of durer of michelangelo of titian of rembrandt and so forth that the figures actually take on the reality that we think the human body confers on the actual world and it took a figure like milton to, to confer on these figures the relationships that we think human beings have if they live together for a long time. But this was a result of a very long, very difficult, and profoundly contested
0: process. When you talk about uh, Durer, you're referring to a, an engraving of, of 1504, and which, which is frontal of both Adam and Eve, both very beautiful uh, figures, and and that apparently had a wide circulation in, in Europe in the 16th century.
1: It's, for one thing, a technological breakthrough. Dürer was the greatest printmaker, the greatest engraver, both in woodcuts and in copper plate as this was engraving, uh, who had ever lived. And he was also an extremely canny businessman. So he figured out how to do something which no one had really been able to do before. If you want to know how Michelangelo thought that Adam looked, you can go to the Sistine Chapel, but you have to get to Rome and get into the Sistine Chapel yeah. uh, to see it. If you want to see Masaccio's unforgettably moving expulsion, you go to Florence to look at the Church of the Carmine. If you want to see Van Eyck, you go to Ghent to see the Ghent altarpiece. But those don't move. And we're talking about a world before mechanical reproduction made it easy to right. move them uh, in, in images. But Dürer makes this object that can be printed and sold in the hundreds and thousands across Europe and it's compelling and beautiful and it's incredibly beautiful in the second and third and hundredth iteration uh, of it so that that a very large number of people began to think yes this is what Adam and Eve must look like and specifically this is what they must have looked like at the last moment before the catastrophe this is what the perfect body looks like it's actually works I think better for Adam than for Eve but uh, they're both remarkable figures but the Adam is particularly stunning based on the Apollo Belvedere pagan sculpture but this is what uh, the perfect body before we began to deteriorate looks like and not only that but this is what it looks like at the as in stop motion photography the instant before the disaster if you look carefully at the wonderful durer print you see a lot of crazy details you see a mountain goat leaping from in the very far distance leaping from a cliff but he's just in the midst of the leap as they say it's a kind of stop motion image or adam's foot seems to be resting lightly on the tail of a mouse and the mouse happens to be being stared at by a rather chubby cat now we know that in approximately 30 seconds adam is going to eat that damn apple he's going right. to move his foot yeah and the mouse, as it were, will be toast. Right. Uh, but this is the moment before. <laughs> uh, and Durer finds lots of ways of signaling that, that this is the last moment.
0: Durer lends the, the physical uh, reality, but then it's 150 years later that we, you come to Milton in 1660s in, in, in England, a great poet who goes further than a physical embodiment and is now trying to get at the reality of the love between the man and the woman. Yes. And this is, again, as an example of your saying that the entire being and life experience of the um, author, that is to say, of Milton, is involved in, in, in this, his work. How does, you know, he... he he brought up uh, thinking that chastity is divine. And so how does he conjure up the love of a man for a woman, a woman for a man, given his own experience with merit? It a, was a good
1: and, I think, quite painful and complicated process. It took Milton virtually his whole lifetime to figure out how to do it, to, to come to terms with his own life experience Uh, And indeed to come to terms with it in relation to the story, because there's a reason why many artists have taken up the story, but actually very few great writers have taken up the story because it's difficult to intervene, as it were, in a... It's one thing to depict the story if you're in the Christian world and are allowed to depict it. and the, of course the Jews and the Muslims wouldn't have because they had a prohibition against the images, but the Jew but the Christians did. But the story itself has sacredness attached to it. So to break into the story, as it were, and start writing it out, expanding it, talking about what they said to each other, and so forth, that took a particular it was done before, but it took a particular kind of of uh, uh, courage. That very few great artists were willing to uh, muster because you had to actually step on the toes of lots of of uh, I mean, it was dangerous and tricky and relate. Really if you, especially if you were pious as Milton was pious, but he had his own very peculiar form of piety, which was rebellious and uh, adventurous. So first of all, he simply had the courage to do it because he was not simply because of Puritanism, but of uh, in which he was uh, raised, but because he actually thought he should be able to work it all out for himself, uh, kind of went beyond even the uh, puritan beliefs, rebellious beliefs of his upbringing. But then he thought to do this he had to bring, as I said, everything to the table. And that meant his own anxieties about sex, his beliefs, his own experience, his own experience of his catastrophic honeymoon, about which we know very little, except that his wife left him after a very short time and went back, uh, went back home. Uh, his own uh, uh, pride in, in being a virgin into his thirties until the moment of his marriage, a whole set of problems and anxieties taken to the table and then suddenly uh, worked out, as it were, in relation to Adam and Eve. The, he could have taken the tack of saying Adam and Eve had no active sexual lives before, the fall. That was the traditional, uh, yeah, right. Religious. It wasn't the unique religious belief, but it was the traditional central. That, that was the Augustine position. Augustine position that they were meant to have a sexual life, but it would have been without yeah. any pleasure. Uh, it would have been for offspring, and it happened that they didn't have it until they were expelled right. from paradise. And there are various versions of this by many many theologians. Milton argues that they had a must have had a great sex life. They must have had the best possible sex life before the fall. Why? Because God could not have given us this experience without it being part of the design for pleasure, that the monks must have been lying when they thought that this would not have been part of human life experience. It wasn't, it's not tainted with sinfulness. It must have been what we were meant to to have. And, in da- and indeed, what happened is that in some ways our sex lives have become worse after the fall uh, rather than better. They're now tainted with with inequality, with violence, with, with uh, uh, a whole set of ugly feelings that must not have existed before. But that Milton should have got to this place and should have imagined this in relation to Adam and Eve is astonishing. There's no one
0: really like this. Talk about then briefly, I mean, his, he's married his first wife with whom he has the Mary problematical. Powell. Yeah, Mary Powell. I mean, she die, she gives him some children, she dies, he marries again. But he, he's also an eminent and distinguished man in England. He, he's a part of the government. He's a linguist. and. He always thinks that it's in him to do a great work, and he gets around to this when when he's wait in his fifties and he's almost completely blind. By he that is time. completely blind. He's completely blind, and he's ruined. Yeah, he, everything has gone to pieces.
1: He was a revolutionary, uh, and the revolution has failed. He was a marked man. He was extremely fortunate not to be executed. Uh, It was probably Andrew Marvell who had very good connections with the Restoration uh, government who might have intervened quietly, maybe other friends who intervened quietly and tried to influence uh, the authorities not to execute him. But there was every reason to execute him because he was completely complicit with the revolutionary government and had gone very far publicly in print to supporting the execution of Charles I. the anyone who was tainted with that, anyone who signed the execution papers was who had survived to the restoration was arrested and then drawn and quartered, killed, yeah. had put up on spikes. Three people escaped uh, who were signatories, and they got to New Haven, Connecticut. Their names were Dixwell, uh, Whaley, uh, and Goff. And there are names of streets in New Haven, Connecticut, yeah. Though no one in New Haven knows. <laughs> That's why they're called that. They're regicides who managed to escape yeah. and make it to uh, America. Yeah. Everyone else is killed. Milton yeah. gets out of this, which is amazing. But he's wrecked. And he returns. He had never given up the dream that he had as a very young man before his marriage. That he had a great poem in him. He could be one of the great poets in the world. He felt, I mean, it took... A stupendous amount of narcissism to believe this, but in this is one of the rare cases in which the narcissist is right. He actually had this in him, this incredible power, but it, he had never actually fully realized that he had written some great poems, but nothing like this. And he's able to channel not only the great things in his life, but also the disasters in his life, and those disasters also included his terrible failures, including failures as a husband. He must have been a miserable husband, Louis, right, yeah. and a lousy father. He was yeah. partly busy; I mean, running a revolution, <coughs> helping to run a revolution. But he also didn't have a clue. I think what how to, what a woman actually would have been like would have when he got married. I think he just didn't understand who women were. I think he probably never fully understood. Uh, But he dreamt that it must be possible to find your deepest friendship with your spouse, that a man and a woman could be, in addition to being profoundly in love with each other and sexually in love with each other, could also have an intimate communion of souls. And I doubt that he ever found this in his life, but he dreamt that it was possible in Adam
0: and Eve. And he also has a, a muse that that comes to him in the mornings and dictates to yes, him, right?
1: At, at night, overnight, at, Urania, a, yeah, right, she was called. Right. She dictated him, dictated to him while he was asleep in his in yeah. his dreams, and then he woke up and said, he was blind. He couldn't write, of course, but he called either for his daughters or for an amanuensis. He said, "Milk me, milk me." He had the poem, the poetry in him from overnight that felt, he claimed, that the muse had dictated to him. And I think there, even though it's easy to dismiss the story, I think actually we should take the story seriously. I think he also lay in bed trying to figure out, before he got milked, as it were,
0: yeah, uh, what right. what the verses really. would be like. But I think it did come to him at night. All right, so that's the... that, that come. Paradise Lost, what, 1674 or something like that? Yes.
1: Wouldn't okay. it be great, Lewis, to have this? Wouldn't it be great to go to sleep and have
0: huh. the muse visit you? I, it would be magnificent. <laughs> it would be magnificent. All right, well, let's move quickly through the 18th and 19th century because the, then all kinds of questions come up. I mean, geological, I mean, there are. They don't come up accidentally. That's the interesting thing. The
1: paradox, my my story, the story I want to tell on the rise and fall of Adam and Eve is a story that says, among other things, beware of getting what you wish for. Uh, It it took a thousand years, but Augustine got what he wished for. He managed to get Adam and Eve finally made real. But it turns out that making them real only intensifies the problems that had always haunted the story. The more real they are, the more those problems become insupportable. The if they're real figures, they are in relation to a real world. They're actual flesh and blood creatures. Then you start thinking about what about those naked people that we're encountering after 1492 in such large numbers in the New World? How come they How come they're not ashamed? You're supposed right. to be ashamed right. by by nature, uh, or rather by divine fiat after the fall, but they're prancing around showing their genitals. What does that mean? Or what does it mean, what do these stories mean uh, that we're beginning to acquire from the other world, from Mexico, about that seems to suggest that the world is much older than 4004 BCE, which is when Bishop Usher thought that the world was created, and so forth and so on. The stories begin to get m- under more and more pressure. And then, above all, there's the problem of what does it mean that there's a prohibition the prohibition is against eating the very thing that you'd need to eat if you wanted to observe the prohibition that you can't how do you know not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil if you don't know what good and evil is what does that mean people had worried about this already a long time from the very beginning of the story but when the the more real the figures become in durer in rembrandt in michelangelo in milton The more insistent they are, the harder it is to deal with these doubts. And then there's a whole bunch of other doubts that begin to arise from other places and other problems. Eventually, the big problems start coming from things like people thinking hard about how language is acquired. The idea of waking up and naming everything begins to get more difficult. Or how many creatures there are in the world, it's not an afternoon's work, Uh, or then above all. Beginning to think about how when, when geology begins to do the real hard reckoning of how old the world is, the story gets harder and harder to take.
0: Right. And there fossils. And then, and then of course, you have Darwin and, and natural selection. I mean, the
1: fossils were, you could deal with by saying that's where you began. How taller is Adam? Well, you find these gigantic uh, thigh bones. You begin to think, God, he was really tall, wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> but turns out they're not humans. But then, of course, at the by the nineteenth century, you get Darwin who took Milton's Paradise Lost as his favorite book with him on the Voyage of the Beagle. So he was saturated with Milton, but he went out to the Galapagos and he begins to put it together, he begins to put Lyell's geology together with what with the fossils he's discovering and then with the creatures that he's seeing on the uh, the Galapagos and he begins he comes up with the theory of natural selection and the theory of natural selection is not compatible or is extremely difficult to become compatible with anything to do with Adam and Eve in fact it's incompatible darwin keeps it to himself when he publishes uh, on the origin of species but eventually by the 1670s sorry by the 1870s when he publishes the descent of man it's all on the table now there is no adam and eve
0: We've come from a different place. But let me read the... I mean, you have this quote toward the end of the book. This is Darwin. I mean, he's... There is no more Adam and Eve, but he misses them. I mean, and and he he no longer can read uh, Milton or he can no longer read Shakespeare. I mean, and he says, my mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of facts. But why this should have caused the atrophy, atrophy for that part of the brain alone on which the higher tastes depend, I cannot conceive. To me that's a fascinating question because the story of Adam and Eve is still alive and well. Yes. Right?
1: Alive and well and and I mean not only in the sense that that in my sense, not only in the sense that millions of our compatriots profess to believe in it literally millions of people in the world profess to believe in it literally but alive and well because the story is immensely powerful because it's good to think with and and uh... darwin actually is in the quotation that you suggest knew that some of the things that he had given up he couldn't read he said he couldn't read shakespeare without now as an old man without feeling nauseated though he loved shakespeare as a young man he knew that he he was experiencing this as a loss now. What's important to grasp, I think, Lewis, is that, is that the, the Darwin who was incandescent in his brilliance, who came up with the theories that have changed our world, was the Darwin who was still reading Shakespeare and Milton. So that, that they were alive for him when he was a young man. Yes, the experience of a lifetime of sifting through the facts to, to uh, shore up his theories had in his, it, by his testimony, had leached away from him the possibility of taking pleasure in this work. But the work is important, I think, for the creative imagination now and then too. That is to say, there's something alive about it. It doesn't mean you Darwin didn't believe in it. He probably didn't believe in it then, by the when he was out on the voyage of the Beagle, but it was alive for him as a as a, how should we say, in his mental imaginary. And I think it's actually important for us I I'm not surprising that I say this I'm a professor of literature. I care about the humanities. It's crucially important that this that the dreams, the fantasies, the imagination that we that our species has dealt with for centuries for millennia is still alive for us. It's not only
0: a matter of sifting facts. No. I mean and and that's a wonderful point to end on because it it ends where you begin. I mean I think one of your very first sentences is humans cannot live without stories. And that and that's true. And that's what you show in in this book and the um, and we have to figure a way that, that uh, our minds don't become machines that 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 we um, put the technologies under the protective custody of the humanities. Yes. Amen to
1: that, Lewis.
0: <laughs> well, Amen to you, too, Stephen Greenblatt. I mean, this is true, truly a wonderful book, and it's been a joy to read and a joy to talk to you. Thank Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Pleasure to talk to you.
0: We've been speaking today with the Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Stephen Greenblatt about his new book, The Rise and Fall of Adam and Eve. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.